Buenas tardes, senores and senoritas. <laughs> you hablo usted espanol un poquito. I only speak a little bit of Spanish, so that's about it. But it is a privilege to be back with you here in Charlotte <clears throat> after being away for about 10 days. Uh, it's really good to be back, as you will notice when I make a few more comments. About uh, two weeks ago, I flew down to uh, Lima, Peru, with Christian Rego and also Mr. Hernandez. We got in about 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning, and then we met Christian's uh, brother, Armando Orego, uh, <clears throat> in uh, Lima. The next day, we drove up to into the mountains, about an hour or so. Actually, we flew up into the mountains and then drove up to about 8,000 feet, where we stayed at a hotel that they've used for the feast down there. Peru is the land of the Incas. It's also a very mountainous country that contains a lot of minerals, gold and silver and copper and a number of other things. Our objective was to look at a piece of property or look at some property that we may use to relocate some of our brethren that live further up in the mountains. Our destination the next day was a place called Sierra de Pasco. It means the mountain of Pasco, where they are mining copper, a great big open pit copper mine that is basically swallowing up the town that was there. You can look this up on the Internet, <clears throat> Sierra de Pasco. It is one of the highest cities in the world of that size, 70,000 people. It's also one of the dirtiest cities and one of the most polluted cities in the world because of the tailings coming out of the copper mine, some of the fumes that come out of the copper mine. But God has called a group of people there, 20 to 15 to 20 people. And I think God may be wanting us to learn something. You know, the cyclone or the typhoon has gone through Vanuatu and destroyed a lot of property over there and has drawn the world's attention there. And yet in Pasco, there's 70,000 people there experiencing another type of humanitarian disaster. There's a lot of lead poisoning there. People are losing their teeth. People are stunted growth. People are dying of cancer. People are dying of uh, lead poisoning. And they are there because there's jobs with the copper mine. It's not the most pleasant place in the world to go. I'd never been at 14,400 feet before except when I was in an airplane. <laughs> it's not fun being at 14,000 feet. Uh, we get up there and uh, your equilibrium is off. You had to be very careful walking upstairs because it was just hard to balance. Uh, I drank a lot of water before I got there, so I didn't get a headache, but uh, it was very cold. And in the hotel, there was no heat. They gave you a little plug-in radiator, but it wasn't enough to warm up the room. So they gave you three blankets to sleep under. You try sleeping under three wool blankets. <laughs> it's hard to breathe because it was so heavy. And you're shivering. I threw up in the middle part of the night because it was just my stomach was just churning. I asked Christian Rego, he's only in his 30s. I said, how did you manage? He said, I've had a headache the whole time I've been here. 
Mr. Hernandez threw up once or twice up there. It was just it was difficult to live there. Now, people do live there, and your body does adjust, but we were only there for about 24 hours. But I thought it was interesting. It's very, it's a dirty place because of the dust that comes out of the mine. It's an open pit mine, big piles of slag here and there. Uh, there's no trees up there, so they build with cement block, gray cement block. So it's very dingy looking. Uh, it's a very difficult place to live. We met with uh, our brethren there that evening, and I had to break off after about a half an hour. I said, I've got to go home. I'm, I'm very cold. And my body was just kind of shaking and realized I'm gritting my teeth <laughs> and grinding my teeth. So I went home, and Christian said, are you okay? I said, no, I'm just very cold. And about a half an hour later, they sent a hot water bottle. Our brethren did, and that really helped. You get under three layers of blankets with a hot water bottle. <laughs> it does help out, but at least I was able to sleep. But this is the conditions that they live in. <clears throat> they were very concerned about their health, and our hope is we'll be able to move them out of there at some point in time. The next day, we drove down from 14,000 feet, and when we got down to about 8,000, we started to feel better. Just adjusting. We were able to spend the Sabbath with our brethren in Lima, Peru, about 40-some people. We had three people that came from a new group way up in the northern part of Peru. They drove for about 16 hours just to come to church. Now, it's interesting. I've talked with some of our ministers around the country here, and they say, you know, I have these great visits with people. They see the program. They read our material. They say, wow, this is really exciting. Where's church? Well, it's over here. It's about uh, an hour drive. Oh, that's too far. And yet this new group of people, and this fellow that's the leader of this group has about 60 people in a group. But they were willing to drive 16 hours down to Lima to learn about <clears throat> the living church of God. On Sunday, we flew to <clears throat> um, Bogota, Colombia, and then another short flight to an area called Armenia, which is an agricultural area where they grow coffee, uh, they grow uh, bananas, and we met Mr. Wakefield. He came in that evening along with Christian Orego's wife. And then we had a three-day conference on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday there in, <clears throat> in Colombia where we talked about how to reach the different countries in South America. And we have an elder in almost every country except in Brazil. We talked about leadership and teamwork. Most of these men and women work basically by themselves in individual countries. Mr. Wakefield talked about how to relate to Charlotte, how to send in financial reports, how to do a number of things like that. And on the last day, I kind of summarized some things, and I said, you know, it's very interesting. We are sitting here planning how to reach the entire Spanish-speaking world of Mexico, Central America, and South America. And I said, you know, it's interesting. About 2,000 years ago, the apostles did something very similar. They planned how to reach the known world at that time. You know, we read in the book of, um, in the Bible, that Paul traveled up to Syria, to Antioch, then into Asia Minor, modern Turkey, went to Greece, Macedonia, then to Italy, and he said, I'm planning to go to Spain. 
and history says he eventually went to the British Isles. The Apostle Peter wrote his epistle from Babylon and then eventually went to Asia Minor, northern part of Asia Minor, and historical sources, he said he went to the British Isles. A book that some of you may be familiar with entitled The History of the Church by a man by the name of Eusebius, lived about 300 A.D. He mentions in his book, <clears throat> chapter or book three, I think it is, basically says the apostles divided up the ancient world. He said that John uh, was sent to Asia Minor. He says Thomas, by tradition, was chosen to go to Parthia, that is the eastern part of, uh, of probably in Iraq by today. And then he wound up going to India. He said Andrew was chosen to go to Scythia. This would be southern Russia up into the Crimea and uh, the Ukraine area. And he also mentions that Mark went to Alexandria in Egypt, North Africa. Then other historical sources indicate that uh, Lazarus appears to have traveled to Marseille in southern France. Joseph Arimathea traveled to the same area and moved up the Rhone and then down the Rhine to uh, eventually go to Britain. But here we were in Colombia talking about this person's going to deal with this country, this person's going to deal with that country. 2,000 years ago, the apostles were saying, you're going to go here, you're going to go over there. And we're doing the same thing today and carrying the same message. You know, the apostles knew what they had to do. They had their instructions, and they knew where they had to go. We have the same instructions today, and we're trying to do the same things today. I would ask you <clears throat> to pray for these men and women in Central and South America and Mexico. They've got a big job to do, a big challenge to meet with postal regulations and languages and currencies and various types of things like that. We also need someone, and this is something you can pray for, that God would send us someone who has language skills in Portuguese. Go home tonight, look at a map of South America, and Brazil takes a big chunk of the northern and eastern part of South America. The area we're covering is basically the north, running down the western spine into the southern part, down into Argentina, which is a big chunk that we may need to cover yet. So you might be praying that God would provide a person or persons that would be able to help us do that. And I'd also ask, like to ask for your prayers for these people living up in Sierra de Pasco, this very high, very cold, very polluted, and not very pretty area. But we'd like to be able to move them, uh, get them located someplace else. It's going to be a challenge. It's interesting when you learn about these situations that uh, people have tried to challenge the mining company and say, look, you've got responsibilities, and some of these people disappear. Some of these people disappear. The government and the mining company got together some years ago and talked about the possibility of moving people, but the negotiations broke down when it came to who was going to pay. So the people are stuck. They're there. They can't really get out. The jobs are there. It's not the most pleasant place to live. As I mentioned, God has called people there. And I think he's wanting to draw our attention to the needs of people like that because they're being exploited. 
They're being exploited. There's no other reason to live there if the mine was not there. So if you can be praying with us, we'll be able to help them to do something for them. It was interesting. I guess I can save these comments a little bit later to just talk about what Mr. Armando Orego and his wife are doing for these people in Peru. Uh, Very different from having socials here in Charlotte. (laughs) They're facing some very different situations. But brethren, we are approaching the Passover in the Days of Unleavened Bread. This is a time for self-examination, for identifying and eliminating sins in our lives, and for becoming more like Jesus Christ, developing his perspective, developing God's perspective. In the sermon today, I would like you to examine your perspective on a number of things and ask a general question, do you have God's perspective? Do you have God's perspective? Let me define this a little bit by asking several questions. Why are you here in Charlotte or wherever wherever you may be when you listen to this on the Sabbath attending with the living church of God? Why are you here? attending with the living church of God? Is it because of your friends? Is it because of your parents? Is it because of the social activities that we have? And here in Charlotte, are you attending here because you have a job? You know, Dr. Meredith made an interesting observation some years ago. He said, when the Bricketwood campus was operating, we had, what, a number, a couple hundred people or more than that working there, living there, attending there. And when the campus closed, people just disappeared. They didn't continue attending church. They just disappeared. Why were they there? Because there was a job? Because their friends were there? because it was something to do? Why are you here with the living church of God? Do you really grasp what God is doing on this earth? Why did we go to Pasco, this place way up in the mountains, the middle of nowhere? What is God doing in your life? What is he doing in your life? What are you part of? What are you part of? Do you grasp the incredible opportunity that God is offering to you and the responsibilities that go along with that opportunity? Do you sense the scope of God's plan, how big God's plan is, and the part that you can play in that plan? We're talking about perspective. In the sermon today, I want to examine the biblical answers to a question. And that question is, why are you here? What are the biblical answers to that question? You know, we had a gentleman that he and his wife began attending with us in one of the areas where I pastored. He'd been with another church group. 
And he started attending with us. And I asked him one Sabbath, I said, why are you here? <laughs> why did you come here as opposed to staying someplace else? He said, you have a better air conditioning system over here. Your seats are softer over here. Now, believe it or not, he's still here. He's still with us. <laughs> but this was his answer to the question. And I would ask you, why are you here? This is not an extraneous thing. It's not just a trivial thing. You need to know why you're here. And I want to go over some biblical answers to that today that I'm not making up. These answers are in your Bible. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, these are not going to be brand new scriptures. But, you know, we have to keep going over the basics from time to time. Because we all have teachable moments. We all have teachable moments when we're more receptive to hearing something whenever uh, than other times. I remember one time, I think my son, Scott, Dr. Scott, when he was smaller, he went, off to, he went out to a different church area and he came back and said, boy, the minister gave a great sermon. I said, what do you talk about? He gave me what the title was, and I thought, well, I've spoken on that topic at least three or four times. <laughs> but Scott was receptive to a certain thing at a certain time, and that really hit him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26, 27, and 28, notice what God says through the Apostle Paul. He says, For you see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God is not calling everyone right now. He's calling a few people. That not <clears throat> but God has chosen the foolish things. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty and the base things. What God is telling us through Paul is not everyone is being called today. Not everyone is being called. He's calling a few people. You know, Lima, Peru is probably, I don't know, around a million people, maybe more than that. We had about 35, maybe 40 there. New Charlotte's a pretty big city. We've got about 250 people here. Where's everybody else? Why aren't they here? The Bible tells us God is not calling everyone right now. Turn over a page or so in your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. Paul says, We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers or leaders or thinkers of this age knew. For had they known, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Verse 10, But God has revealed these things through his Spirit. What Paul is saying, the world does not understand the plan of God, the wisdom of God. They don't understand why the world is the way it is. And yet if you understand what we're talking about, that is a miracle that God has accomplished in your life. He's opened your mind to be able to understand. It's like a television screen, at least old television screens. <laughs> Some of these channels, you get all kind of snow and fuzzy stuff until you focus certain things. And all of a sudden, the picture came into, to, into view that was visible, that you could see. 
you know, my brother and I tried to tell my mom and dad what we were learning in the church of God. And I've told you this before. You know, we're going to rule the world with Jesus Christ. My mom said, you guys can't keep your room clean. You think you're going to rule the world? <laughs> but we tried to explain, but the comprehension was not there. My mom was a Sunday school teacher. My dad was a deacon and an elder. He read our magazine. He watched Mr. Armstrong. Before he died, he said, you know, Mr. Armstrong really did seem to understand the Bible. But then how do you know? <laughs> how do you know whether he's right or wrong? You know, another time I was preaching on the Feast of Trumpets, I believe it was. My parents were visiting, and they wanted to come to church, basically to hear their son speak. So I talked about what was coming down, going to happen in Europe and Germany coming back, and then we had lunch. And I told my dad, because he doesn't like to sit still, I said, Dad, you know, you don't need to stay this afternoon if you're tired. And I'm not going to use his exact language, but he said, you scared the, the daylights out of me this morning. <laughs> he said, i got to come back this afternoon to find out what's going to happen. <laughs> you know, he understood certain things. Another time, we were down in New Orleans and driving across Lake Pontchartrain, and there's a smell to it. He says, what's that smell? I said, that's Lake Pontchartrain. It's a lake just north of the city. And we went to a nice restaurant in New Orleans that night, and he saw lake shrimp on the menu. He said, I think I'm going to have some shrimp. I said, Dad, why don't you ask the waiter where it came from? He said, waiter, where did this shrimp come from? The waiter said, Lake Pontchartrain. <laughs> My dad had shrimp anyways. <laughs> you know, he understood about the dietary laws, but they weren't for him, especially when he wanted to eat shrimp. <laughs> you know, the comprehension was just not there. Yeah, he saw the picture, but it, it, it didn't relate to him. If God has called you and opened your mind to understand why these instructions are there, you're in a special category. Turn to Matthew chapter 13. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 13, while Jesus was talking with his disciples, and his disciples asked him, why do you speak in parables? Why do you tell these little stories? And Jesus answered in verse 11, he said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. It's been given to you to understand my plan and my purpose, what I'm doing on this earth, what I'm doing in your life, what I want to do on this earth. But to them, to the people on the outside or people that were hearing the stories and the parables but not understanding, he said it's not been given to them to understand. Verse 16, you can read the intervening verses. He said, blessed are your eyes. And the Greek word here means to be envied. To be envied are your eyes. For they see and your ears for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets, many righteous men, this is Daniel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, so on, desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Remember towards the end of the book of Daniel, Daniel said, well, what does all this mean? <laughs> and he was told, Daniel, 
The book is closed up for right now. It's not for you to know right now. It'll become obvious later. So what we're told in Scripture is only a few are going to be given the opportunity to understand the truth of God right now. Now go to John chapter 6. The world today thinks that God is trying to save the world. But that's not what we read in the Scriptures. John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus makes this statement, No one, no person can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws that person, draws that person in, opens their mind, and I will raise him up in the last day. Then he goes down through a number of verses here talking about... You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, internalize my teachings, begin to live by those. In verse 65, he says, Therefore, for this is why I've said unto you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to that person by my Father, or by him, or to him by my Father. In other words, they've got to be granted an understanding. They've got to be allowed to understand, enabled to understand, attracted. I remember I was in a board meeting years ago up in Massachusetts. And I was sitting there in the meeting, and this man who was chairing the meeting walks in, and he had a Plain Truth magazine under his arm with a starving child in the front of it. And I'm thinking, I've worked with this guy. He's never said anything about the church. And I was just kind of bursting with questions. And when the meeting was over, I went up to him and I said, uh, it's an interesting magazine. Where'd you get it? And so I saw it on a newsstand and I just had to pick it up. I saw it on a newsstand and I just had to pick it up. You know, he was being drawn to something. I don't know whether he ever did anything with it, but it may have been a witness for him. But Jesus makes the statement, no one can come to me that's why we don't stand on street corners and you know, invite people to church. We put out a magazine. We put out broadcasts. People that hear it respond, those that God is calling. But verse 66, it says, From that time his disciples, now these were people following along, watching the miracles, listening to him preach. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. In other words, <clears throat> they apparently came to the conclusion. <laughs> I don't understand what he was talking about when he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. That doesn't sound very good. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to me. I remember a friend of mine that I went to high school with. He knew I was part of a church. And we had sang in choirs together in a Presbyterian church and going to school together. Somebody sent him a Plain Truth magazine when he was in a hospital. He said, Doug, is this associated with your church? I said, yeah, it was. He said, this is beyond me. (laughs) He said, I don't understand what's going on here. All he knew was I was associated with the magazine, but he didn't understand. If God has opened your mind to understand the plan and purpose of God, why we're here on the Sabbath, Why will be keeping the holy days just ahead? That is a miracle. That is something that God has done in your life for a reason. 
for a reason. And that's something to be very thankful for. John 8.32, you don't need to look there, or you don't need to turn to it, but it says, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You shall know the truth, the truth will set you free. When God begins to open your mind, how the world has been deceived, how the plan and purpose of God is coming together, that literally sets you free from the confusion, the deception, you know, almost every place we went in Peru and Colombia had these big statues of uh, the Virgin Mary and the baby Jesus, or Semiramis and her son. But this is all over Catholic countries. Saw the same thing in the Philippines, same thing in other Catholic countries around the world. The Catholic Church has not done a lot for the people in the countries where it has gone. They brought their priests, brought their rosaries, built their statues. Spanish did that, and then they took the gold. Left the statues, but took the gold. (laughs) Back to Spain, billions of dollars worth. When we were in Peru, I guess two years ago, up in Cusco, it was a Spanish regional capital. That while there must have been at least two or three big Catholic churches on the square, very pretty Spanish architecture. While we were there, we heard some drums coming and horns blowing, and here they come pulling a statue on a wagon. A lot of poverty and a lot of deception. We walked through the one Catholic cathedral, and they had a big painting on the wall of the so-called Last Supper with the 12 disciples sitting around with Jesus, and there was a meat dish on the table. It was a guinea pig. (laughs) Because in Peru, they eat guinea pigs. You let them run around in your kitchen, and they eat the garbage that's on, on on the floor. Of course, they leave their droppings there. And then you can sell the things, too. You can eat them and sell them. But here they were projecting this image in the cathedral of the Last Supper was a meal eating guinea pigs. That's not what they ate. They ate lambs. (laughs) Mr. Rego was mentioning how he's had to work with some families down there. But when he first visited with them, they had a bunch of guinea pigs in the house. They were eating them. And then he were explained that, you know, we don't eat these things. They're unclean. God didn't make them to be eaten. He came back the next time. They still had the guinea pigs. He said, what are you doing? He said, we're selling them. (laughs) And they'd make about $17 a month, which is not bad money there. He said, well, you know, that's not quite right either. So he left them, and he came back uh, sometime later. The guinea pigs were gone, but they had chickens. (laughs) So they were making a transition, and it took some time. But their life was changing, and they'll be an example to the people around them. Let's look at one other special scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's talking about marriage and family and children. Paul is giving guidelines here. Actually, start in verse 13. This is a woman who has a husband who does not believe. If he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified or special 
by the believing, especially in God's sight, because of the living with a believing wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified or special in God's sight when she lives with a believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now are they holy? They're being exposed to the truth of God on a daily basis. They're in a very special category, even though they're not converted at that point in time. They're being exposed to a way of life, a way of life based on the scriptures. As I mentioned earlier, if you understand what we've been talking about here, God is giving you an incredible opportunity to understand his plan, understand his purpose, and prepare to participate in the coming kingdom of God. Let's turn to one other scripture in Luke chapter 12. Because there's a responsibility that comes along with this understanding In some cases, you didn't ask for it. I believe it's in Isaiah 65, verse 1, where it says that I'll be be found by those that were not looking for me. You know, I wasn't looking for the truth of God. I went to college uh, planning to be a, and then went on to graduate school to become a doctor. And my brother went to the college over in Brickett Wood. I think I came home at Christmas time and I picked up an ambassador college catalog and it I looked through it and I thought, this is religious. (laughs) What's he doing? It's a religious school. And he came home in the summertime. I came home for about a two-week vacation. And I said, Fritz, what are you doing? So that's a religious school you're going to. He didn't say much. He said, he tossed a booklet at me. He said, read this. It was 1975 in Prophecy. I read it and I said, well, what else do you have? He tossed another booklet at me, U.S. and Britain and Prophecy. I think I've told you some of these things. I wasn't looking for this. They came looking for me. <laughs> God is calling people. What method did he use to get a hold of you, to get a hold of your mind, to get your attention? We could probably talk all afternoon about that. But God is calling a few right now to give them an understanding. Luke chapter 12, verse 48. But there's something that comes with that opportunity. latter part of that verse, it says, To whom much is given, much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. If you've been sitting in church for 10, 20, 30 years, God is going to be looking for a return on that investment. Are we preparing to make that return payment? You need to think about that. Do you recognize, do you realize what you have been given as we talk about the understanding that God provides to a few today? What does God want us to do with this opportunity? Why are you called into a church today? Think about that. Why have you been called into a church today? Many people believe that salvation is just a very personal thing. 
well, God just called me, and it's just me and God. I don't need a church. I don't need religion. I just need my Bible and just need to pray and talk to God and talk to Jesus, and everything will be okay. But again, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible have to say about this? You go to Matthew 16, verse 15. We have been called to be part of a church. Matthew 16 and verse 18. Jesus says, I will build my church. He's talking to Peter. And the word here for Peter is Petros, meaning a small stone. But upon this rock, Petra, this huge big rock, and that is the teaching of Jesus Christ and the apostles, he says, I'm going to build my church. The word here is ecclesia means a called-out group of people. He's calling a group of people to become part of a church. And the gates of the grave, where the gates of Hades, are not going to prevail against it. It's going to be around. It's going to live. It's going to continue. But he's creating a church, building a church, and he gave that church a mission. He gave it a mission not just to save souls and not just to have socials, but he gave them a mission. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And notice what Mark is talking about here. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. So now after John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's what he was preaching. He wasn't preaching about uh, starting your own little living room church. He wasn't saying just do your own personal Bible study. He wasn't saying you just talk to Jesus and everything will be fine. He came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and he says repent. Now, that's missing from a lot of messages today. They want you to give your heart to the Lord, want you to give you, you talk about Jesus and love God. But Jesus said, repent, change your life, turn around and go in a different direction. Turn with sorrow. I've been wrong. You know, I grew up as a kid, went to Sunday school, sang in a choir, went to church. And I thought I was a decent person. I didn't swear, drink, smoke, wasn't old enough. (laughs) But I thought I was okay until I came in contact with the church and was talking about repenting, keeping the Sabbath, keeping the holy days, not harboring bad thoughts about people. Well, I didn't say it, (laughs) but it was still there. You know, these internal things we've got to repent of and change. But that was part of the message. Mark 16, verse 15. This has been called the Great Commission, where Jesus told his disciples after the resurrection. He said unto them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel. That gospel was about a coming kingdom of God. And as we see it later on, it was about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and why he died. I was reading a book recently entitled, I think, The Diseased Church. It was about churches that are dying. 
And it's written by a guy who does a lot of research in Christian churches. He says, many churches are dying today because the Great Commission has become the Great Omission. Instead of focusing on their mission of going into all the world and preaching the gospel, they're focused on what color carpets are we going to have in the sanctuary, uh, what kind of seats are we going to have, what kind of socials are we going to have, and, and who's going to be over this committee and who's going to be over that committee. He said the Great Commission has become the Great Omission, and that's why churches are dying, because they've lost their sense of mission. You know, this conference we had on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of this week, we had a room full of almost 20 people, and they were talking about how are we going to reach the nations of Mexico and Central and South America, over 450 million Spanish-speaking people in the world. How are we going to do this? How do we get literature to them? How are we going to serve their requests? They were mission-focused people in that room earlier this year. Do we have mission-focused people in this congregation today? Is that where our heart is? Is that what we see that we want to happen today? Or are we focused on something else? Again, I'm not here to point fingers. I'm here to ask questions. Because it's so easy to get focused on personal things. Well, I've got this personal problem. And I've got this uh, job I'd like to get or this person I would like to find that's interested in me. <laughs> we can get focused on these things. Where the apostles were focused on reaching the world with a message. You know, Dr. Meredith's focus has been, we've got to preach the gospel. We've got things to do. We have a mission to accomplish. Acts chapter 1, I think, is a very interesting verse. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, talking about a mission-oriented group of people. Jesus is talking with his disciples before he ascends into heaven. They'd ask him, uh, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? Verse 6 and verse 7, he said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. This was going to be on Pentecost. And you shall be witnesses for me or to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. This is in the northern part of the country, the southern part of the country. And to the end of the earth. The word here for end is eschatos. It means the remotest parts of the earth. And Mr. Hernandez has been down to Terra del Fuego at the very tip of South America. A number of us have been to uh, Cape Town in South Africa, at the very tip of South Africa. You know, last week we were at the uppermost parts of the earth. <laughs> Not uttermost, but the uppermost parts of the earth, 14,400 feet. It was no fun. But God has called a group of people there. And I think to help us focus our, our attention on what is needed to be done there. But Jesus said, you're going to be doing these things. And Mr. Weston has visited people above the Arctic Circle. We're striving to do what Jesus said you will do before 
I return. And what are we preaching? You know, we're not just preaching about this, the standard message. You know, just give your heart to the Lord and love Jesus and everything will be fine. If you notice briefly what Philip was preaching when he went down to Samaria, here we see the development of the gospel. Verse 12, but they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, who Jesus Christ was. He was the Messiah that was predicted to come. He gave his life as a sacrifice for all mankind. He's going to return and set up a kingdom on this earth. And both men and women were baptized. Acts chapter 20, you'll notice what Paul was preaching about. If you go through the book of Romans or Galatians, some of these things, Paul is talking about the cross of Christ and the death of Christ, but that's not the only thing he talked about. In Acts chapter 20, he was meeting with the elders of the church in Ephesus, a very big city. Verse 20, he says, Remember how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed to you and taught to you publicly and from house to house, testifying to the Jews and the Greeks, repentance towards God. That's what Jesus Christ was emphasizing in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. And faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. He was preaching about Jesus Christ, his life and death and so on. Breaking in verse 24, so that many... But none of these things move me, nor I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race. It's going to be a challenge with joy. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. We're sitting here today, we're standing here today because of the grace of God. In his mercy, he opened your mind, he opened my mind. We didn't deserve it. But in his grace, he opened our mind to understand because he has a plan, he has a purpose. Verse 25, and indeed now I know that you all, Paul must have been a southerner, I know that y'all among whom I've gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Verse 27, for I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. The word for counsel here in the Greek means plan or purpose. I have explained to you the whole plan of God. But then notice the next couple of verses. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, take care of the church of God, protect the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men, in some cases women, will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day. We've had people leave the church, thousands of them, to follow off in different directions, some really crazy ideas. But this was the gospel that Paul was preaching that Peter was preaching, that Philip was preaching. What else did they were they told to do? Back quickly to Matthew chapter 10. Again, this is part of the mission of the church. 
And notice it's bigger than just you and me. It's bigger than just personal salvation. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 10. Again, I realize that uh, most of you are familiar with these things, but we also have people coming along that are new. And we really need to be focused again. One of the things we did at the conference in South America, we went through the the, uh, statement of beliefs of the church and encouraged the men there to be speaking on each of these subjects periodically so that we review and we don't lose track of our mission. We went through the mission statement of the church. But Jesus said, go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go saying, preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The reason that Matthew mentions kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God is writing to primarily a Jewish audience. And the the name God was sacred to them. So he says kingdom of heaven. But this is what he was talking about. I never heard anything about the kingdom of God until I came in contact with the church of God. I heard about going to heaven. I heard about angels. I heard about walking on streets of gold up in heaven. But I heard nothing about a kingdom of God until I came in contact with the church of God that was preaching about the kingdom of God and explaining what it was. And you know, brethren, the more I've traveled around, and I think many of you have too, you see the crying and the aching need for right government. The crying, aching need for the government of God. Whether it's in the Philippines, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in South America, whether it's in Washington, D.C., or Charlotte, North Carolina. We need the government of God. That's the only thing that's going to solve the problems that people are facing today. And that government is coming, and you've been called to be part of that. But he said, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The apostles knew where to go because they understood where the Israelite peoples had gone. That's why Andrew went up into southern Russia. That's why Peter went to Parthia or Thomas, and some of these other places. Why did you wind up with Peter and Paul, probably Joseph of Arimathea and several others, in Britain? Because there were Israelites there. And that was where the church was going to grow from. See, God has a plan. He's got a purpose. Matthew 24 talks about his disciples says, when are you coming and what's going to be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And Jesus said, watch for a series of events that are going to fit together, including religious deception. Many will come in my name and deceive many. You know, tomorrow here in Charlotte, there's going to be thousands of people worshiping on Sunday. And they're going to be nice people. They're going to be sincere but they've been deceived to keep the wrong day, to believe a different gospel. And they're going to be very sobered when Christ returns and the saints start rising up into the air and then they're they're (laughs) jumping up and down and ready to go, but nothing happens. 
like the joke we heard in the sermonette today. The atheist that was dead, all dressed up and no place to go. <laughs> the people are going to be surprised. They're going to be disappointed. Why? Why not me? Because they were deceived into believing a wrong gospel. It's going to be sobering. But this is what's coming, brethren. You know, why are we to watch? This is mentioned about a half a dozen times. In Matthew and Mark and Luke, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, it says, watch, watch. Why are we commanded to watch? For our personal excitement? Wow, I like Bible prophecy. I just like to watch this stuff. That's not why we're commanded to watch. Watching is not a passive activity. Well, that's interesting, that's interesting, that's interesting. We're commanded to watch so that we can be watchmen. A watchman warns when things are coming together. You know, we've been talking about a beast power coming together in Europe for, what, 50, 60 years. It's coming together today. In Europe, not in the United States, which some people think the beast, or they've been told that the beast is the United States. These things are happening today. Germany is coming back today. You know, if you go to the News and Prophecy, the article on Germany, the very first one, it was written using an article that was published in Der Spiegel. It's a German online <clears throat> magazine. The title of the article was The Fourth Reich, What Some Europeans See When They Look at Germany. You know, we published an article, what, 10 years or so ago entitled Resurgent Germany of Fourth Reich. People today are seeing the same thing coming. And we've been saying this for quite some time. How could we say these things? Isaiah 10 talks about uh, God is going to use the Assyrian to punish backsliding nations. The Arabs in the 14th century, 1400s, were making connection between Assyria and Germany. In fact, when you read this article, I would encourage you, uh, use the, whatever they called it, uh, hyperlink. I, I don't know all these terms, but <laughs> the, the link to the article is in our News and Prophecy article. It's a hyperlink. Press on that. And this article from their Spiegel should show up. And they're using some of the same phraseology that we use in our article 10 some years ago. The Germany is coming back. It's surprising people. They never thought they would leave Europe again. But it's happening. Bible prophecy is real. God is real. These things are happening. And part of our job is to point out the significant trends. Dr. Meredith has mentioned numerous times about the Ezekiel warning. Let's go back to Ezekiel chapter 2 and Ezekiel chapter 3. You know, Ezekiel was among the captives that were taken from uh, Jerusalem to Babylon. But his prophecies are about the future of Israel, the nations of Israel that went into captivity a hundred and some years before. But notice just a couple of verses. <clears throat> Verse 3, he said to me, this angel said to me, Son of man, I'm sending you to the children of Israel. 
You know, there were 12 tribes of Israelites to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. They're an impudent and stubborn children. I'm sending them, sending you to them. Over in verse 4 of chapter 3, he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel. The house is made up of 12 tribes. And speak with them, speak my words to them. For you're not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech or a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Verse 7, but the house of Israel will not listen to you because they will not listen to me. For the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. Verse 17, I've made you a watchman to the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word of my mouth and give them a warning. Basically, it says if they don't listen to you, then that's their problem. But if you don't give them a warning, then that's your problem. There are a number of things on the news just this past week about the, what is happening in our country today. A Presbyterian woman who heads a, um, she was a president of the Presbyterian Lay Council, says that the uh, members of the Presbyterian Church USA have voted to change the definition of marriage to include same-gender uh, same marriage. And she says basically they're turning away from the Word of God. But this is what is happening. The liberals are in charge. As conservatives leave the church, that leaves the liberals in charge and things continue to go down the drain. An Arizona judge made a ruling. This is from the Arizona Supreme Court. Said if uh, judges want to carry on marriages, if they marry heterosexual couples, then they either marry homosexual couples too or they don't marry anybody they're being forced to do certain things. The vice president of the United States, talking with a homosexual group recently, took God's name several times in vain. And he said, basically, Bible, marriage, bigots, bigots, people that believe in a biblical definition of marriage need to be eliminated from the planet. They need to be eliminated from the planet. This is the vice president of a nation that still says on his coins, in God we trust. How much longer is God going to let this go before he begins to intervene? Let's go back to Leviticus 26 quickly. Where these promises of blessings and cursings were recorded in the Bible, God said, if you obey me, you're going to be blessed. However, if you disobey, there are going to be consequences. But notice the phraseology here, Leviticus 26 and verse 15, 14 and 15. If you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, if you despise my statutes, or if your, whole, if your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, these are the things I'm going to do to you, even appoint terror over you, wasting diseases, uh, I'm going to break the pride of your power. All these things are going to happen. 
And what is sobering, brethren, we need to keep this in mind, is that when these things begin to happen, the Bible indicates they're going to happen suddenly. They're going to happen suddenly. It's come, going to come together suddenly. I think there are three prophecies, specific ones in Isaiah. Chapter 9, verse 14. Chapter 29, verse 6. Chapter 30, verse 13. It says, your downfall is going to come suddenly, in an hour, in a day. It's going to surprise people. You know, nobody was expecting Germany to move into the driver's seat in Europe as quickly as they did. But this financial crisis came along. Germans had the money, and all of a sudden, they were in a driver's seat. You know, things could happen very quickly. A crisis could change things very quickly. So I have to watch. The Bible tells us what's going to happen, doesn't give us all the details. But these things could happen suddenly. And this whole thing that, well, I know I should be baptized, you know, and I know I should be keeping the Sabbath better, and I know I should do this and do that. We may run out of time, brethren. We may run out of time. If we're not watching, if we're not focused, if we're not doing what we need to be doing. So what is it that we need to be doing? We need to be recapturing true values. In Matthew 17, 11, learning how to keep the Sabbath, learning why the biblical health laws are important, learning why forgiveness is important. These are all part of the same package. Luke 1, 17 talks about making ready a people prepared for the Lord. What are they going to be doing? What do we need to be preparing people to do? In Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, talks about Christ is going to return. He's going to be called the Prince of Peace. He's going to show people the way to peace. And the way to peace, basically, is beginning to obey the laws of God. When you do that, you don't have to feel guilty. You'll be at peace with God. You'll be at peace with yourself as we honor parents, as we respect elderly people, older people, if we don't lust and covet, this begins to create an atmosphere of peace. He's going to be involved with setting up the government of God. He says the government's going to be on his shoulders. There's going to be no end. It's going to involve justice and judgment. Now these people living up in Cerro de Pasco, this very polluted area up there, there's no justice. If they want to get a blood test, the doctor won't tell them what's in the blood test because they don't want to incriminate the company up there. They don't want to get in trouble with the government. This is not justice. It's exploitation. Isaiah 2, verses 2 to 4, says the law is going to go forth from Jerusalem. You know, we've got millions of people that believe they're Christians that have been told the law has been done away with. All you need to do is love God and love your neighbor. That's the only laws we need to obey. 
they're not going to be ready to teach people how to live by the laws of God when Christ returns because they've been deceived. They've been shortchanged. God is calling a small group of people, you, me, people in this room and some other rooms around the world, to begin to understand the laws of God. Here's how you apply the laws of God. We're practicing now, gaining experience. And one of these days, you may be sent to Peru, to Colombia, to Canada, to Georgia, (laughs) to South Carolina, (laughs) to New York City, Los Angeles. It's going to be your job to start teaching people how to live by the laws of God. You take some time to study, take some time to pray, talk to God about what you'd like to change in this world. Prepare for what's coming. Notice something quickly, just kind of in an interesting way. Isaiah chapter 66. Many people think these things are all done away with, but that's not what the book says. Isaiah 66, verse 15, let's start there. This is what's going to happen when Christ returns, a time of judgment. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind and render his anger with fury and rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his word, the Lord will judge all flesh. This is when the world comes to an end. This society comes to an end. Who is he going to be judging? Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves and go in the gardens where they're worshiping idols. After an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh. The abomination. Guinea pigs. And the mouse. Yeah, they eat these in some countries. Along with snails and puppy dog tails and <laughs> all these other things. Then in verse 23, and it shall come to pass from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come and worship before me. What we're being told here is in the coming kingdom of God, people aren't going to be eating unclean foods. They're going to be told why and why not. They're going to be keeping the Sabbath. They're going to be keeping the holy days. The whole ball of wax is going to come together. A restoration of all things. Acts chapter 3, verses 19, 20, 21. This is what you have been called to do. This is what you've been called to participate in, to literally change the world. We've been called to be lights and examples to this world, to seek first the kingdom of God. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, a lot of people say that today. Oh, I love the Lord. Jesus said, if you love me, the book says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Well, I do, only two. That's all I need. They're going to be surprised. They're going to be surprised. We're told to come out of this world and be separate because this world has been deceived. It's been amazing to me 
of people in the church of God who sat in church for 20, 30, 40 years. In many cases came into the church because they were excited to hear Bible prophecies being explained. How many of these people have bought into some of the ideas circulating through the churches of God today? One particular group was saying, we don't want to talk about the bad news, we just want to talk about the good news. And the bad news was prophecy. And the good news is God loves you. Another church is being told, we don't want to talk about prophecy because that attracts the wrong kinds of people. <laughs> like you. <laughs> no, many of us were attracted to the church of God because it was preaching and explaining Bible prophecies. I listened to a Bible study by a friend of mine. He stayed with another organization. He was giving a Bible study on how to avoid prophecy addiction. Now, you've heard that phrase before somewhere. He said, brethren, I've read through the New Testament, and there's just not much prophecy there. And I'm thinking, what about Matthew 24? What about the whole chapter of Mark 13, the whole chapter of Luke 21? What about the book of Revelation? And I'm thinking, what book are you reading? But he wanted to downplay prophecy. And other groups are de-emphasizing prophecy. And this is what God has given his church to understand so that we can be a watchman to the world. And yet many groups are just turning away from it. Many Protestant groups don't understand Bible prophecy. Brethren, let's conclude. As we approach the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread, let's all examine ourselves and examine our perspective. You know, we can read through the Ten Commandments and am I living by these physically and spiritually, but maybe examine your perspective. Do you have God's perspective? Why are you here? Do you understand why you're here? The Bible tells us many people are not going to be here. God's not calling everyone today. He's calling a few people. Do you grasp the incredible opportunity that God is giving to you to be called to understand the plan of God, to see the world from God's perspective? This is not God's world, but he's going to remake this world, and you're going to have an opportunity to be part of that. Are you excited and are you committed to fulfilling the mission that Jesus Christ gave to his church. I remember I went to the United Church of God startup conference years ago in Indianapolis, and I sat with a fellow who baptized me. He was there. And we saw them vote for the name of their church, and he wasn't excited about the voting, and I wasn't either. I said, what are you going to do after the conference? He said, well, I, I'm going to go home. I said, I'm going to go see Dr. Meredith. So I did. And I didn't have any contact with this fellow for about two or three years, but I was writing an article on agriculture, and he was living in a farming area. So I called him, and we talked a little bit. And I said, uh, you know, we sat at a table two or three years ago. We made different decisions. I said, how do you feel about your decision? He said, I'm comfortable. 
And he said, how do you feel about your decision? I said, I'm excited. I'm excited. He was comfortable. He could preach what he wanted. But there was a lack of excitement there. Are you excited about what God has opened your mind to understand? Is your heart in the work of God? Or is it focused on yourself? You have to answer the question. I have to answer the question, each of us for ourselves. Brethren, we have been called to change the world, but we first have to change ourselves. God has to work with us to mold us and fashion us. And that's why we're here. That's why we have the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread coming, is to examine ourselves, to develop God's perspective, to focus on the mission that God has given to us, to be excited about the opportunities of reaching this world with a very positive and a very powerful message. So brethren, as the Days of Unleavened Bread and the Passover arrive, as we go through them, Examine yourself. Ask God to show you what you need to see. Ask God to mold you and fashion you so that he can use you as a powerful instrument in his hands so that you'll be ready to help change the world.